Welcome back. Two terms to know. If you're not sick of them yet. Positionally and experientially. If you are, it's too bad. Positionally in Christ, we are saved and righteous. Experientially, we are being made right over time. Yes, Robin? Is having an overview of 1 through 12? No. Okay. And that might become clear as we go through 13. Awesome. Because we have quite a dilemma when we get to 13. Okay. Alright, the book of James is written by God. Uh, he used James, the brother of Jesus, to pen it sometime between 45 and 50 AD, according to conservative scholars. Um, and I mean scholars, not just Wikipedia searchers, <laughs> for Thomas's sake. Uh, it was written to those scattered from Jerusalem, who we have identified as the Diaspora. Not saying Thomas does that, saying that his Biblet teacher does that, and so we're not just going off of Wikipedia for our information, we're getting off of what has been traditionally identified as conservative scholarship. For the clarification, that was apparently necessary, or superfluous, either way. Ooh, tip points. James deals with one topic, true spirituality, which he addresses through four evidences. Faith in action, which is what we're looking at now, and I've kind of realized that I haven't really highlighted this evidence that much, um, but we will do kind of a summary of, of the way that faith in action is an evidence of true spirituality. Uh, B, self-control. C, unselfishness, generosity, impartiality, and patience. And D, submission to God through prayer. Um, James gives us not just what it means to be truly spiritual, but the mechanics by which to become and be truly spiritual. Pisteos, feminine noun, which means complete dependency based on response. It identifies a relationship between two or more objects in which one of the objects is completely dependent upon the other for something or action. Model of humanity, God the Father initiates, mankind responds. That's how we were designed to operate when we operate outside of our design, um, aka in our fallen nature or from birth without a spirit. We operate as if we are God in our own selves and we actually move that little oval to the left and actually attempt to be on equal plane with God. Um, but Christ showed us the model of humanity is that God the Father is the initiator and mankind is the responder doing what he says, trusting and obeying, for there's no other weighing. Review human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint. Human viewpoint is sight-based in the sense of perception. It's a process of thought or manner of thinking which is based on data perceived and developed by the human senses within the realms of this human world system. Divine viewpoint is quite the opposite. It's faith-based, a process of, of thought or manner of thinking which is based upon dependence upon spiritual truth doctrines of God's world system. In other words, we have to be renewed, according to Romans 12.1, so that we learn how to operate off of faith-based or divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint, which is sight-based. That's part of this whole sanctification process, spiritual growth that we're dealing with uh, in James, and that was a part of our theme verse study. Anyone remember what our theme verse is? You can just say it. No, but that's a good guess. It's time. Time for, yeah. We are the Awana Sparkies. Our theme verse is. There you go. Second Corinthians five twenty one, which says, "We're gonna have to do a study on this one." I, I know the study. Sorry I didn't hear when it started, so. Neither was I. Even more reason. We'll go back over it. 
He made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. Become Ginnamite, our namesake. I don't really know why we're going back through that. It just kind of popped up. The faith rest technique is the act of relying upon God's promises and doctrines through faith during circumstances which are humanly difficult or trying. This is an ability that believers are to develop and practice. It requires knowledge of God's promises and application of Bible doctrine, the principles of God's word. The faith rest technique allows the believer to rest in faith upon God because of God's promises and the doctrines that he has written in his word, despite the degree of difficulty of man's circumstances. In other words, no matter the difficulty, whether it's easy or very difficult, the equation, if you will, the formula is there. God has given it to us in his word. So it doesn't matter what we go through. We have the tools necessary to go through them in a way that is truly spiritual. All right. Tonight we're looking at James 1.13, uh, which demands that we do a review of pyrosmois, which means something which attempts to learn the nature or character of something through evaluation. This is the word that we got when we said in verse 2 a long time ago that consider it all joy my brothers when you encounter various trials that word trial is periosmos um actually it's periosmos in the root form and it's that thing which is evaluating someone's character um, typically we've talked about it being an external thing we're going to start looking at the internal concept of it um, when we get to next week or the next session if we don't make it next week uh, but in in the sense of a test, periosmois is that very concept that something is being evaluated um, to see what it's made of or to see, um, we've kind of given three areas to it, the resolve, the nature of an object and characteristic uh, or the character of an object. So periosmois is that thing which attempts to learn the nature or character of something through evaluation. Again, that things resolve nature or character. Okay, if you, if you notice, the heading is different tonight, and we're instead of on part 11.2, we're on part 1 again, and the heading is trial versus temptation. If you haven't noticed, in your Bibles, we go through verses 2 through 12, and we talk about the word trial or test. And then you go through verse 13 and 14, and you get this new word temptation. Now, we've got a slight problem with that, which is why we're talking about trial versus temptation, and this is part one, part two should be next week, and we might have a part three, but I don't necessarily anticipate that. It just kind of depends. But verse 13 of James chapter one says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Good things to know. Okay, this transition from talking about trial to temptation, as it appears in the English Bibles by James from dealing with trial to dealing with temptation is apparently a mistranslation by the translators. Surprise, surprise. Okay, if you, I I would assume that when you come, you're expecting me to say mistranslation or something at some point during the night to say the English says this, but no, it really says that, um, which should mean that you guys start looking more towards Greek rather than English, which would be the ultimate goal. But again, that's not everyone's drive, I guess. So this mistranslation is not necessarily devoid of applicable meaning. In other words, it's not just worthless to us we can actually find meaning in the way that they've mistranslated it. And we're going to kind of walk through why they did what they did um, and hopefully keep a literal translation, but at the same time uh, understand the two different concepts and why they said trial one place and temptation the other place. <clears throat> so that's our task tonight, is to explain the differences between trial and temptation through our study of James 1.13.
here's our dilemma. In James 1.12, you've got Makarios, Haner, Haas, Hupamanai, Pyrosmon. And that last word, Pyrosmon, and again, is the trial, that thing which is attempting to learn the character uh, of an object or a person through evaluation. And then James 1.13, it starts off with Legato Medais Pyrodzamenos. Now, if you notice, Pyrodzamenos. Oh, that doesn't work. Hey. Okay, those circles are supposed to be up above. I don't know why they are where they are. I must have not moved them, uh, or that something else got moved. But those circles should be around the stem of Pyrodzamon and Pyrodzamenos. So that they should appear here. Okay. Now you see the connection here? They're two different words. One's a noun, one's a verbal participle, actually. But the stem is the same. Now from the stem, you get different forms of a word. Like run would be the, the root word and the stem of running. Okay, you add different things um, to make it fit grammatically. So we've got a participle in James 1.13 and a noun in James 1.12, but they have the same stem. Now what that means is they're from the same definition. This is why I say it's an apparent mistranslation, because in James 1.12, and all the way from chapter or verse two down so far to twelve, anytime we've had the word trial or, or tribulation or test, it's had that pyra stem on it. And then we get to their, verse thirteen, and they say, "Let no one say when he is tempted of God." And they use in the the Greek text again uses that pyra stem. And then you get to verse fourteen that says, "Each man is tempted," which again is pyra stem. So you've got this same word in the same word group, which has the same basic definition used from, from verse 2 all the way down through verse 14. So we're actually not talking about the difference between trial and tribulate, or, or in, uh, temptation. We're using the same word. And so it kind of alters some things, which is why I called it a, a dilemma, uh, which is also why my tardiness tonight can be explained, because it took a while to figure out this dilemma in a way that I felt like we could actually portray it uh, adequately. Now the noun part and the verb part are, are key parts here, and that's what we're going to get at. <clears throat> Pyrosmon or Pyrosmon from verse twelve is from Pyrosmos, excuse me, which refers to something which attempts to learn the character of an object through evaluation, and then Pyrodzamenos from verse thirteen is from Pyrodzo, which is a verb and it means to attempt to learn the character of an object through evaluation. So you've got the thing which attempts to learn it, and then you've got or the circumstance which attempts to learn it, which is that trial concept, and then you've got the actual attempting to learn it or the testing or the tempting of it, okay? Both pyrosmon and pyrosmenos are relatives being noun and verb counterparts to their respective roots. For example, the sentence, the run was good, run is a noun, a thing, and in the sentence, run for your life, run is a verb, an action. So in that sense, they have the same definition, but it's a different in, uh, employment of that, if you will, or um, application of it. So pyrosmon and pyrosmenos are the noun and verb forms of the same stem, pyra, from which they are formulated. Therefore, their definition is only differentiated in their roles as a noun and a verb, one being a thing and the other being an action. So in one sense we're talking about a thing, the other sense we're talking about an action. And yet the translators decided they were to be translated by two different words, trial in verses 2 through 12 and temptation in verses 13 to 14. Don't misunderstand that paragraph as condescension or... Um, disgust for it. In some places I am disgusted by what the translators have done in the English Bibles, 
but I understand why they did it this way. We're going to kind of evaluate that and, and go through it, but we still need to see why that one word is the, the one that God chose to put through there. <clears throat> okay, there are two, two main reasons um, and two main things we under, need to understand about why the translators use two different words to identify the difference between the noun form and the verb form. One is that a trial is the result of temptation. Okay, now hang on to that because that's going to need some explanation. And then number two, being tempted by something is a trial. So number one, temptation comes from pyrazomenos, which means to attempt to learn the character of something by evaluation. So when I say temptation, implement that definition. When I say tempting, implement that definition of attempting to learn the nature or character of something by evaluation. Don't think temptation in the sense that we typically do of trying to get someone to do something they're not supposed to do. Because in essence, a trial and a temptation are actually trying to get us to do something we're not supposed to do. It's always got a negative connotation with it. So through tempting or attempting to learn the character of something by evaluation, a trial is encountered. Now, even in the sense of trying to get someone to do something they're not supposed to do, that becomes a trial to test and see what that person will do. Will they live up to their character or will they succumb to the, the temptation? <clears throat> but what we need to understand here is that temptation isn't just merely trying to get someone to do something they're not supposed to. It's an evaluation of that person's character. When we're seduced by the different distractions of, of this world and that Satan coming before us and that our lust patterns fall out victim to, which we'll look a lot more into next week, but when we're seduced by all that stuff, we are actually proving what our character is, whether or not we've relied upon God when he says this is right or this is wrong. When we fall victim to temptation, we are in disagreement with God, and we are found to have not have the genuine character that we're supposed to have as believers. So again, we're talking experiential here, or the concept of the inner walk with God in our experiences, uh, moment by moment, are we living up to our genuine state of, that God has given us as positionally righteous in Christ? So, one, temptation comes from pyrodzomenos, which means to attempt to learn the character of something by evaluation. Two, through tempting, a trial is encountered. And three, the tempted party therefore finds themselves within the midst of a trial while they are being tempted. Temptation isn't just about getting you to fall or getting you to feel guilty. It is about trying your character. When Satan and company use external distractions to tempt us, when we have our lust pattern, our ultimate nature, tempting us and being seduced by the Satan company, it is an attack on our character. Because it's an attack on the character of the God who made us and the God whom we say we serve. When we choose to go through a trial or a temptation in an affirmative or a positive way, meaning that we don't succumb to it, to sin, we are actually revealing the very character of God that is able to change the nature of us as sinners into righteous people. When we fall victim to it, we are witnesses to men and angels that we have not lived up to the standard that God has called us to. And the standard that he says, if you will just depend upon me in faith, we will take you up to that standard and carry you and keep you there. James 1, 2 identifies there are different types of trials when it says when you encounter various trials. Questions? No. <clears throat> so again... Why do you use that last part? Uh, because we're going to be talking about different types of trials. And temptation in the sense of how we typically understand as being seduced into sin or being enticed into sin, that's a trial. But temptation isn't just that. And trials aren't just that. Because sometimes trials, 
while they all deal with whether or not we're going to trust God or trust something else, because um, that's what it comes down to really, sometimes it's not a, a test to see if we will overtly sin or do something we know is wrong. Sometimes it's a physical circumstance that is difficult for us to get through that we have to either choose to rely on ourselves or something else or Bible doctrine. So what we want to see is that sin is a trial, or temptation is a trial, and then external circumstances are trials also. But they're all part of this temptation process to entice us, um, not necessarily to sin, but to reveal our character through that enticement. So when you're tempted, it's all about revealing your character, not about getting you to sin, not about getting you to fall, nothing like that. When you fall victim to sin, your character is revealed, and it actually is represented negatively towards God's character in the eyes of Satan and company and humanity. We can see that part about humanity real clearly when someone comes up on the street to someone and says, oh, I'm a Christian, and then uh, they go off and start cussing and swearing and doing who knows what, and the person says, well, I thought you were a Christian. That's that concept that we, we see easily in humanity, and we've got such a negative reputation nowadays because of the hypocrisy of, the con of it all. Well, it's not necessarily hypocrisy because we're not perfect people. The hypocrisy comes when we say we shouldn't be doing this, and then we find ourselves doing that because we fall victim to the temptation we face. Any questions or anything else to add? That's why I don't want a fish on my car, because I might accidentally cut somebody off and then be cut off by somebody that says they're a Christian. That's why I put well, a Darwin fish on my better. car. Sometimes you accidentally cut people off, and so that's why. You put a Darwin fish on your car so you can cut people off. Well, they don't care. You're not a Christian. You can get away with it. No, I don't do that. I, feel like that's really I would not do that. Theology. It is totally bad theology. All right, number two. Being tempted by something is a trial. Now, this kind of sounds similar, but it's a different way of looking at it. Um, so we had number one, that a trial is the result of temptation. And then number two, being tempted by something is a trial. Sub point one, temptation occurs when one is acted upon himself or acts upon another object or person in order to attempt to learn its character. So we can actually tempt others. And we also are tempted ourselves. Number two, through this act, being affected upon the believer, being applied to the believer, the believer finds themselves within something which is attempting to learn the character of an, of it, of an object, being the believer, through evaluation. So by the act of temptation or this trial, or this testing being implemented upon the believer, they are found within a trial. We had a similar statement on the last slide, um, slightly different essence to this one. Number three, temptation is not merely the enticement to sin. It, is, it innately precludes the testing of an individual. There's a lot of extra words in there. <clears throat> precludes means come before and includes at the same time. It, it's one way of saying it. Um, in the sense that you, you can't have temptation without the concept of enticement to sin. If you have temptation, even if it's in an external circumstance to either get you to choose to trust God or choose to trust something else, that's an enticement to sin. It's not necessarily overtly designed to pull you into sin or get you to do an act that you know is con that you know isn't right. It's more of a kind of subversive route. So preclude is the concept that with temptation there is the enticement to sin in all situations either to trust God or trust yourself, or to commit an act which you know is outright sin. You kind of have the concept of rebellion with verses 13 to 14, 
about knowing that what you're doing is wrong. And then in verses 2 to four, two to 12, you have this concept that there's an external circumstance that kind of just causes causes your natural response to do this. Right. Either way, we're not supposed to operate according to our nature. Um, we're supposed to operate contrary to that, which was what we had the nice little video about, or little diagram about, with all the animations of the sponge last week. You would like it. It was, it was <clears throat> okay, so temptation is not merely the enticement to sin. It innately precludes the testing of the, in, of the individual. Okay, forgive my typos there. <clears throat> okay, a trial is the situation or thing, the noun. Okay, it's a situation or thing in which one is being tempted, the verb, or evaluated. Okay, so that tempting is the infliction of the trial upon the individual. Now remember, there are various types of trials according to James 1 2, which is why we had a couple slides back, that little verse in there, um, when we encounter various trials and tribulations, or which isn't actually in there. But um, It's imperative that we understand the difference between the noun and verb forms of these words. One being the thing of the test, of the test, and then one being the, the action of testing. Okay, If it's not clear now, it should get a little more clear. If it is clear now, it'll probably get a little less clear um, because we, we're going to be dealing with a lot of different semantic kind of things um, coming up. All right, in James chapter 1, verse 13, we have the phrase in the New American Standard Translation, let no one say when he is tempted, which is from Medice, Pyrodzimenos, Legato. And it's all backwards in English. Literally, if you take the definitions of the words, if you look this up in an interlinear, you would actually get not one being tempted, say. Um, so with, with Greek, with Koine Greek especially, the, the emphasis upon what is being discussed is placed in a higher priority at the beginning of the sentence. So the most important word that God used or that James wrote down here was made ice, not one. Um, that was the emphasis that was being employed there, which is also why in English we have to totally work this around to make some sense in our English syntax. The Greek syntax doesn't require words to be in specific orders. You don't have to have an adjective prior to a noun. Um, you can have it somewhere in the end of the sentence and the noun in the beginning if you want to place different emphasis on different things. So medice is the emphatic word here. And it's actually medice parodzimenos, that's the, the total subject that, that we're talking about. But that concept of medice comes from me, which means not, and dice, which actually comes from heis, which means one. So when you put the two together and you get that delta in there in the middle, you get medice, which means not one. Um, so we're talking about a single uh, object or person. So not one single thing. Parodzimenos, um, being tempted is what we're talking about with that verb of to test or to tempt in a way that you're trying to learn the, the nature or the character through evaluation of an object. So with medice parodzimenos, you've got the emphasis that there's a severity of James's statement, not one being tempted. It's really what he's saying, and we're going to understand um, that that severity is extremely important um, to what James is, is trying to say here. Now, pyrodzimenos is a participle that James uses to identify his subject as those, the ones who are being acted upon by something which is attempting to learn their character through evaluation. So we're not talking about just believers here or just humans here. We're talking about believers who are actually being tested right now, right in this moment. Now, I say that 
that's the concept that we want to immerse in our imagination that we're in a moment in time when this is written that these people are being tested um, being tempted in that sense but James is setting up a statement that again is formulaic or like an equation that can be used at any time so whether they're in a testing at the moment or they come into a testing in the future or they've been in a testing in the past this is going to hold true <clears throat> the acted upon part that I mentioned uh, in that first paragraph is from the expand definition and it's the result of the passive voice of parazomenos voice in koine greek again is used to express how the subject operates in relationship to the verb so you've got an action um, to test and you've got the subject which is an innate in the in the verb um, the subject in our sense is the one that's being tested and that it's a part of so it's the, the ones being tested are defined by that action of being the ones that are tested so it's the testing or the the ones being tested. This is probably the better way just to understand it for now. The tested ones, yes. Um, that will work. So with parodzomenos in the passive voice, it's identifying that they're not the ones performing the action of testing or participating in the action of being tested and being affected by that testing, but that someone or something else externally is testing them with something. Okay. I'm getting funny faces from the wife. <laughs> So, with this passive voice, was this something I said? No. Okay, with this passive voice, we're being externally tested here, maybe, I don't know. With the passive voice, it's identifying that the subject, the ones being tested, are being acted upon to be tested by an external force, uh, by something else outside of them. It's not them doing the action of testing themselves they're actually receiving the test from someone else. So something else is attempting to learn. It's the, their character. Okay, now since the subject, this is the second paragraph down there, since the subject is built into the verb, we need to know what legato means in order to understand what the subject is doing. So our subject is those being tested by an outside source. Those being, those which are being, their characters being tested to see what they're made of. Um, legato is the upper right okay. say okay. now <clears throat> with, because we're dealing with parodzomenos as a participle and it's a verbal participle we're actually by making that the subject and define them by that action they are actually the ones that now become the subject of legato okay, so in other words within the verb legato you've got a third person singular ending which is a he, she, or an it Okay, if we had third-person third plural, it would be they or those. But it's third-person singular, so we know that our subject is either going to be a he, she, or an it from legato alone. Parazomenos is referring to anyone. It's going to be a he just because the, the gender in, in Koine Greek kind of takes that over. Whether it's a mixed group, it becomes masculine, um, typically. And Spanish, I think, does the same thing. <clears throat> so legato means to speak or to say. And what it does is it emphasizes the verbal communication of a thought. Okay, now... I said verbal communication. I don't want to mislead you to mean that they actually have to speak this out loud. That's the concept, but the thought of speaking it in your mind would also be benefit. It would also be accurate. Um, it's not just a, an out loud, outspoken verbal communication. It's a thought uh, communication as well. So it, it's verbal in the sense that it's made of verbs. It's constructed of words rather than so much auditory verbal. Now, legato 
is an imperative active verb in the present tense. So our subject is being commanded to do something. Number three, imperative mood on your mood in Koine Greek slide, uh, says that legato is an, a, a command because it's an imper imperative mood. Now, this is why they said, let no one say. And that word let is very passive to me. Um, I'm not sure how better to do it other than to say, this is a command that you're not supposed to do this or don't do this. Um, but we need to understand that this is a command that's being given to those going through or those being tested to not say this. It's a command, therefore, if we do it or if we fail to obey it, it is sin. Now, the voice in Koine Greek, legato is in the active voice, identifying the subject performs the action. So the ones being tested perform the action um, to speak. And again, with our actual phrase in here, we're dealing with let no one speak or no one going through a test being tested is supposed is to say this or to speak something, speak this. In our present tense, uh, understanding this, the concept is continuously speak. Now, don't get the concept with the present tense that the action starts and it never ceases. The emphasis is that it's an ongoing action but it doesn't tell us whether it stops or it starts, or whether it stops. Does that make sense? In other words, when Jesus says you have to believe, and it's a present tense believe, it doesn't mean you have to believe and continue to believe the rest of your life. We actually have a lot of the grammar involved there. If we choose to disbelieve or say, you know, unpray the sinner's prayer, God's actually secured us, for those who want to for some reason, God's actually secured us in Christ with no act of ours being able to take us out of that. Um, so we can't actually reject Christ once we've actually accepted Christ. Our lifestyle may reject him, but God has already taken that point in time once we accepted him, pulled it out of time, uh, and sent it on, divorced it from forever. That's actually part of the tense. Now the reason I bring this up is because there are those who believe that you have to continually do this action. Uh, well, Jesus oftentimes walked in the present tense. <laughs> and the emphasis that it was an ongoing, it was a continuous action, not necessarily an ongoing action, one that never stopped. The present tense just doesn't emphasize an end to the action. It sees it as a continuous action. Now, obviously, Jesus is no longer walking upon the earth, okay, in the form of a man. We've got the Holy Spirit who's on the earth uh, and dwelling believers. So where you see the present tense, it's not an ongoing action. It's a continuous type of action, one that continues with no reference to whether or when it stops. So legato is a present tense verb, which means continuously speak. Now we put that all together and our, our understanding of James's opening statement is not one being acted upon by something which is attempting to learn its character through evaluation, perform the continuous action to speak. So you get the command that this is not supposed to happen, right? Nobody speak. Okay, if you want to get rid of that middle parodzimenos thing, because that just throws it off. So not one perform the continuous action to speak. Okay. So in that sense, it's it's command not to rather than do this. So James is introducing something which he says none undergoing temptation should speak. Um, he's giving us and he's going to give us a thought or a phrase that he doesn't want anyone to speak. And it the concept again with his emphasis may die, with my die span at the beginning of the sentence is that not a single one is supposed to speak the sentence or the statement that he's saying not to. That gives that again that emphasis of the severity of what he's saying. Um, 
I, I don't know if maybe your mom's ever told you don't don't you don't don't let me ever hear you say that again and it's that no that's that's good I'm proud of you guys but <laughs> my sister heard it a couple times <coughs> actually I heard it for my sister a couple times I'm sure I don't, I don't know if that was actually told for me I just can't remember but but it's that concept of don't ever let me catch you doing this again or don't let me hear you say this don't ever say this that's the severity by which the command is being made <coughs> Now, what is the statement that's not being not supposed to be said? Hati apotheu pyrodzomai, which is I am being tempted by God in our English translation. Um, but if you put it in the right order, it's that away from God, I am being tempted. Um, you kind of can see the difference between a Greek mindset and an English mindset, or the different syntaxes. <clears throat> but with the second... Um, literal rendering there we see the parts of or the words and how they relate to one another rather than I am being tempted by God which we just fluently understand as a phrase and we move along what, we'll, what we do when we break it down to this uh, literal order is that we actually emphasize each aspect of it a little more which is why we do it so on the top I've got that little literal order that away from God I am being tempted and I've kind of tabbed over so you can see which words go with which and um, theu and god are god's a little close to from but you can see the, the breakup there now hati is a conjunction that connects james's first statement with his second so that command not to speak something is being connected through hati which means that that no one speak that and then you get the quote of what is not supposed to be spoken so it's linking no one say with the content of what is not to be said Apa is a preposition which literally means away from. Um, it sometimes just means away, but it literally the full definition is away from, and it denotes motion from one place away from that to another. Um, and the, whether it arrives at the at its final destination isn't in view. It's just that it's moving away from something. So because of that, it shows a source or origin. Sometimes it shows its possession. In this sense, um, the way we've got it is that it's showing us the source from which something came, and it's coupled with Theu, which is God, and this is a reference to God the Father, but it could also include the Elohim uh, Godhead, if um, just because context would allow it. So when we couple them together, we get this understanding that the source or origin of something is from God. So it's something is coming away from God to the person, and so we need to find out what that something, that object is. We look at Pyrodzomai, uh, which is the action of being tempted. So, <clears throat> what what James is getting at here is that no one should say that that the action of being tempted, no one being tempted, should say that that temptation or that being tempted part is coming from God. It's not from Him. He's not the source. Pyrodzomai is a verb which means to attempt to learn the character of an object through evaluation. We're going to be real familiar with this by the time we're done with this passage, uh, this verse. And James is saying that no man is to say that God is the source of the tempting of those being tempted. Okay, That's kind of promising to me. That's kind of encouraging. Because I don't know about you, but there's been times in my life where I've been like, man, God must hate me. Or like, he must be just like, don't even talk to me right now, you know. And he doesn't do that. But for some reason, we, we end up believing that at some point. Um, and, and it's our job, I believe, as believers to disbelieve that and, and remind ourselves through meditation on Scripture and 
uh, memorization of scripture, having hidden God's word in our heart, uh, what truth is, which is why we're supposed to continue to go Bible studies. But <clears throat> it's comforting to know that God doesn't tempt us or punish us with temptation. Uh, it doesn't make any sense for a God who is sinless to want to cause sin in another which also then would lead you to the same argument of it doesn't make sense for a God who is sinless to create something sinful. Um, he has to create something with either the ability to choose right or wrong, and if he creates right, then there has to be a wrong because that's the antithetical attribute of right. So when we get to... Oh, did you? Thanks. I'm keeping the score up here. <laughs> When we get to this, this concept of God's not the one that tempts us, this is typically where most sermons would stop. It's take comfort, God's not the one that's tempting you. Um, but here's what I love about James, and, and Koine Greek just does this all the way through, is it tells you, don't, don't say that because God's not the source of temptation. But then we get into why God's not the source of temptation and the mechanics of it. So we've, we've just learned what not to do, and now we can learn why not to do it. So, so far, James has told us that no one is to say that the source of their testing is from God. Literally, not one being acted upon by something which is attempting to learn its character through evaluation, perform the continuous action to, to speak that away from the source of God I am being acted upon by something which is attempting to learn my character. I don't know if there's any way to read that that it actually makes sense. Um, maybe putting lines between each of the actual definitions to break it up. Um, but not one being tested or being tempted, perform the continuous action to speak, that from God he is being tempted. That's our, our understanding, which you can see in the first part. Robin. So God does not attempt to learn our character for evaluation? That's the dilemma we face. Because that's and, we've, weird. and we've been here before. I believe what we talked about before was that God disciplines us to give us an opportunity to trust him again and use the character he's given us, not to learn whether we have that character or not to force us to either use it or not use it. And there's a difference between testing and discipline. Now we've got the, the Old Testament passage in Genesis, I think it's 21 or 22, where Abraham was told to take Isaac to the mountain. And God afterwards said, Thus I have proved uh, your faith. He already knows we have it. He doesn't need to learn it. It was when my mother was here. And she'll be here next week? No, two weeks. So we're probably going to make it out of here without going through this again. Although I'll probably get an email from her if she listens to this podcast, which she probably is. So, <laughs> everyone say hello. Hi. Hello. Hi, Dad. You're hello too. Anyway, sorry for all those non-family members listening, if, if anyone is. But, <clears throat> but there's a difference between testing and discipline. And, and there's also this dispensational concept that God doesn't deal with us the same way he deals with, different, with the Old Testament people. He, he requires different things from us than he did from Adam and Eve than he did from Moses, than he did from Abraham, from Joshua, from the Israelites. And the church and the Israel are not the same things. Um, in fact, God says that there's neither Jew nor Gentile if it, you're in Christ. So you've kind of got no way of wiggling it out that the church and Israel are the same thing. No, it's in Christ. All those who are in Christ are believers. Um, now, 
Tim discipline and testing to prove character are two very different things. When we're testing to prove character, we're trying to negatively get someone to not live up to their character. That's that's the thing, is that if we look at the the examples that have been given in the, the previous verses with Dokomos to test something to see if it's genuine, you've got this perfect substance that is now being tested to see if it's imperfect. It's to see if there's any imperfections that can be removed from it. That's the concept of this that, that's being employed here. And that's why I say there's always negative connotations to this testing or temptation process. Because it's not ever testing to prove how good we are, how good our character is, or how righteous we are. It's actually trying to tear us away from what God has instructed us. And so it doesn't make sense for God to do that. And this is why there's a dilemma, and I'm waiting on an answer from a, a double doctorate grandfather of mine that said he would get his response to me this afternoon. Um, but he's teaching classes right now, so I'm not going to rake him over the coals too much. But <clears throat> with this word pyrodzomenos and pyrosmos being written all throughout this whole part of James 1, 2 through 14, you can't get any clearer than this verse that says God does not tempt anyone or God does not test anyone when it's the same word being used. One's just a reference to the noun and one's a reference to the verb. I mean, you'd have to have two different words in order to say, well, God's tempting. God doesn't tempt us, but he tests us. It's not. It's the same word. So how do we rectify that with Abraham, where God says he proved? And the, the Hebrew is a, a corresponding word that in the Septuagint, if you looked it up, um, you would actually, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you'd actually get pyrodzimos uh, out of the, that passage, which now brings in a couple different things. So dispensationally, no, I'll get right to you. Dispens well, I'll probably get to you in about 20 minutes. But dispensationally, we understand that to the church age, when we're talking about believers being tempted, we may have something different than the command or the requirement of Abraham, whom God may have proven. Now, God also said after he proved Abraham's faith, and again, I haven't done the study on that other than to look in and see, hey, this is the same word in the Septuagint as it is in James 1, 2 through 14, and then the Hebrew correspondent is very much that testing approved character thing. But beyond that, there goes a train of thought. Noel. <laughs> is, is Abraham too much of a rabbit trail? Because if it is, I can ask later. Right now, I think we're on plenty of rabbit trails. Go for it. Okay. So could it be possibly that, um, that the tested can prove it to different people? Like, um, like Abraham offered the sacrifice Isaac that it proved to himself and to people around him that he followed God so that God already knew that he yeah, that's that's a possibility because we are witnesses to men and angels, um, and it may be that God says now that I, now I have proved now I have proven your faith to men and angels, not to myself, um, because there's also a verse, and this is where my train of thought was coming back together. So thanks. This there's also a verse that says that God says now I know your faith, and it's not that He didn't know it before; it's now I have come to see it in observation. And that there's a difference in the definitions. Now I have academic knowledge versus now I have come to observe your faith. And that concept is faith in action. So, yeah, it could be that God proved his faith to men and angels or for not so much himself um, in that sense. James, do you have something to add? Uh, I just had an analogy that I'll finish you because it actually measures up. But it's the way 
if you had something like a storekeeper was selling something and he knew it was strong, he might demonstrate that it's strong to somebody interested in buying it, right? But he knows it's not going to break. That's why he'll drop it on the floor. Whatever he wants to do to prove that it won't break, he yeah. knows it won't break. Versus someone who's buying it that will drop it and, oh, it broke, I'm not buying it, that type of thing. So one is I think it's a plausible it I think it's a plausible analogy for the, the two concepts that are employed because um, because God's either proving it to himself which doesn't make any sense with from the prods standpoint because he already knows or he's proving it to someone else and then you've got the, the dispensational mindset that being that it's a different age and different things required this may be something new that we have a promise that's a promise of ours not necessarily a promise of theirs so in other words, Old Testament saints may have been proved by God to himself, but still but the concept doesn't... doesn't right, I know. So the concept doesn't really hold water there. So what, all I'm saying is that there's a couple of different things that that outside of this verse, which clearly says that God doesn't test someone in that sense to prove their character, to learn, to attempt to learn their character. Outside of that, we don't really have any firm, concrete answers. But it does harmonize somewhere, and I think the dispensational concept is there. Um, but I don't know, because you're right; God's omniscience doesn't change. But I definitely think the dispensational concept is there. The you don't want to pull it in too quickly, cop out. Yeah, and I, and I don't. I've never been the type to say, "Well, I don't know," but this is it. Yeah. If I don't know, you guys need to know I don't know. And there's other <laughs> options out there besides what I'm saying, so that you guys, says what you're supposed to do is go back and prove and discover it later for yourselves and test it out. <clears throat> so I'm not going to say this is it, but my leaning is that there's a dispensational concept here, and then that proving was a one-time deal, and I would believe, like what Noel was saying, that that proving was towards another person, not to himself. Um, the other thing is that I'm not sure that... Call me a heretic, but I'm not sure that the Septuagint is actually something that we can use as an inspired source. Now, here's the problem with that. Yeah, I know, heretic. Jesus quoted from it. A lot of the New Testament has quotations from it. The Jews used it uh, in many instances. So it seemed to have in the Apostolic Fathers and the history and tradition that kind of authority. I don't know, call me a skeptic or whatnot, but I don't know that I see it. And that's just a personal thing. That's that's not based upon scholarly work, analyzing and figuring out. That's just a, a personal hitch I got with it, is that, well, it's a translation, and if I say that a translation from Greek to English isn't as good as the Greek, then why would a translation from Hebrew to Greek be as good as the Hebrew? That's the concept. So I would say go to the Hebrew always first, but I do use the Septuagint to kind of get an idea sometimes. How's that for rabbit trail? Okay. So, so far, James has said, no one being tested or tempted performed the action to speak the statement that away from the God I am being tempted <clears throat> in a way that something is attempted to learn my character. Okay, so we're back on track now, right? All right, hang in there. As is typical in the original language, the text not only gives a command, but explains why the command is valid and able to be carried out. That the reason for that being, uh, for God cannot be tempted by evil. Again, the English is a little backwards and a little misleading. When you put the literal rendering together, you get uh, Hagar Theos Apirostos Estin Kakon, which is the for God untemptable is evil. <laughs> Interesting, I know. A couple of things, that word Kakon doesn't mean evil. Okay? Sometimes it's been translated that way, but there's another word, Paneros, which actually means evil in that sense. 
Um, so don't, what? Bad? Yeah, bad. So don't take this to mean this is what it's saying is that God's evil. Wait, does that mean bad? Kakon is from kakas, which is inherently <laughs> worthless, which means bad. Yes, okay. it's God's definition of bad. We're going to get to that too. The other thing is that the Greek construction here is actually, it demands this arrangement of the words so that it makes it look in English like it's saying that God is untemptable and he's evil, uh, being evil, but it's actually not that. There's an attribution going on here, um, that God is untemptable uh, even against evil things. That's kind of what we're getting at. Now, with that said, Koine Greek does an amazing job with syntactical relationship structure. And syntax, again, is how the different words and the sentences work together. And so we call it a relationship structure because they relate to one another in certain, in certain ways. So while it doesn't make sense in English, and why it says that in English God is untempt God untemptable is evil, um, it wasn't designed to be interpreted through our English syntactical, syntactical structure, which is a good thing. Because the literal grammatical historical understanding of that would say that God is evil. Um, <laughs> the literal rendering. Anticipated our language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the literal rendering of the text is this: "The for God untemptable is evil." However, in order to emphasize the Greek syntax, we must highlight the relationships. In other words, we're going to look at the grammar of the words and see which one's direct object, which one's the, the um, object of the verb, and all these other things. Okay. It's a lot of fun, I know. So after grouping the syntactical constructs together appropriately, we have a more understandable literal understanding. For the God is untemptable, in parentheses, with evil. The conjunction gar, pronounced gar, is causal. That's one of my favorite Greek words. It's a pirate word. Is causal. That's why we look at the Greek, is for the pirate words. The conjunction gar is causal, and therefore denotes the cause behind the command. So in other words, the command is don't say this because, the cause, the God is. Now what is the God? He is untemptable with evil, is what we're getting at. So this is the why, this is the reason, this is the because. Don't say it, because of this. <coughs> and what, yeah, we'll get to that, hopefully. <coughs> So the phrase hotheos esteen apyroston literally means the God exists being incapable of being tempted. Now look at, if you will, I don't think I can highlight this, but we'll put a line right here mentally. And what, what word do you have? Pyroston, which is to tempt. Now if you study Koine Greek, you'll find out that in certain cases when an alpha or that A looking thing comes in front of a word, it negates it. So it's actually given it an a characteristic of not being able to be tempted, which is huge, because if we have a God that's able to be tempted, should throw up a red flag in your head right now, is there's a question coming later for harmony. If we have a God that's able to be tempted, we've got a problem because now he's subject to something else. Now that red flag I was referring to was Jesus. After the 40 days in the wilderness, he was tempted in, in how many areas? Three. And yet the Bible says that's all the areas of man. Hang on to that, that's extra, that's for next week. Okay? There are three areas in which man is tempted. Hang on to it. It's going to be fun. So this, this phrase literally means the God exists, being incapable of being tempted. And it makes logical sense, again, because a supreme and sovereign infinite being and ruler should not be subject to anything else. If God truly is sovereign, nothing else can take him off the throne, not even man's free will. If God truly is uh, supreme, nothing else can overrule him or overcome him. And if he's truly infinite, then no finite thing can overcome him or take over him. So it doesn't work. 
Um, <clears throat> we have to have a God who is incapable of being tempted. Well, the harmony with the whole Jesus thing is that Jesus actually came to earth as a man, was God in the flesh, and so he was subject to the things of this of humanity. Okay, so there's your harmony. No, the three things, that's next week. Oh. Yeah, the circle of the three things, three stars around it. It's going to be fun. Advertisement for next week. No, I, I don't like... I, next time. I do end up blowing my previous because I like to get more explanation about it, but yeah. All right, so kakon, which is that word that's been translated as evil in New American Standard, um, is not literally evil in the sense of wickedness or evilness. Um, that would be poneros, which is almost always translated as evil or wicked. Um, kakon is only translated evil in certain senses, and I would say those sentences are null and void under Greek, Koine Greek uh, grammar and syntax rules. Uh, part of the reason is because of this. So instead of referring to evil or wickedness, kakon refers to something which is inherently worthless. That is something that has no value within itself. See, God says there are good things and there are bad things. Man says there are good things and there are bad things. Feeding a homeless person to man, a good thing. Unless God tells you not to because God's using that opportunity there to get the homeless person to recognize something. So this is why it all comes down to our relationship with God. We either are going to do a good thing in God's eyes or a good thing in man's eyes. Or a bad thing in God's eyes and a bad thing in man's eyes. Typically, the good, human good, human bad are equivalent to God bad. God bad. Um, so with that said, good based upon human viewpoint is defined as something, and I looked this up on Google. You can go just Google define um, good. It gave me a couple different dictionaries, and it says, desired or approved of, that which is pleasant or nice. Feeding the homeless. It's good. It's pleasant. It's nice. Not necessary. It's not enjoyable for the person, but it's a nice thing to do. Okay? It's approved of. It's a pleasant thing to do. <laughs> and if you walk by a homeless person, and someone gives them money, and someone else walking by, and then they look at you, and you're like, I ain't giving money. That's disapproved of, right? Okay. So good based upon human viewpoint is desired or approved of, and that which is pleasant or nice. Good based upon divine viewpoint from the word agathos, not agathos. Is defined as something which is valuable or beneficial within its nature. It has inherent value. So not mutually exclusive. So then diagram and there's an intersection between human good and... Well, right, right. No. You could be both. They are mutually exclusive. Human good is not God good. There could be something that you would do that humans would look at you and say, oh, that was a good thing for okay, you yes. to do. But God would, it would also... Yeah, but it doesn't go the other way around. Right, right. That's yeah. what I'm getting at. But what I'm saying is they're not that mutually exclusive, meaning that they do have an intersection of these two definitions. Yeah. So they can match both. Okay. Yeah, so, so it's a square, it can be a rectangle, but a rectangle cannot be a square. Right. Is what it is. Divine viewpoint can be... Good and or good divine viewpoint can be good human viewpoint. Good human viewpoint cannot be divine human or divine good human viewpoint. Divine, you got it right. Okay, that which is good in a human viewpoint cannot be that which is good in divine viewpoint. But that which is, unless the other way around. Okay, now we've looked at good. We'll look at bad. Human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint on bad. Bad is the opposite of good. It's undesired or disapproved of, and that which is unpleasant. <clears throat> How many of you guys know Spanish? A little bit? Un poco? Un poquito? Okay. Bad based upon divine viewpoint is from the word cacos. 
not making it up, that's what it's, what it's from. And it's divided as something which is inherently worthless or possessing no beneficial properties within itself. If you don't know what that means in Spanish, I'm not even going to tell you to look it up. I'm just saying it's, it, it's a little bit more fragrantly descriptive in Spanish. But in Greek, kakos means that which is inherently worthless, possessing no beneficial properties within itself. So unless something comes into it, unless something fills it and makes it valuable, it is not valuable. <clears throat> so kakan, being from kakos, means inherently worthless. So what we end up getting is that hotheosestin apyrostin kakon is that God is not able to be tempted by anything which is inherently worthless in its nature. Okay, now wickedness in its nature is inherently worthless. Okay, it has no benefit. It is not beneficial under a divine viewpoint um, concept. So wickedness fits within this inherently worthless thing. Wickedness is bad. It is kakos in God's eyes. But we're not talking about poneros and just that aspect of wickedness. We're talking about all things which are inherently worthless. Wickedness, sin, all those things which God says have no inherent value. It's an interesting thing to, to look at when you're reading your Bible sometime, um, maybe in quiet times or whatever. Look at the, the times when God tells, deals with a person as being a sinner or righteous. And you'll notice that he's always talking about salvation. Look at the times when, a per, when God's talking about a believer and his actions. They're no longer sinful. He changes them and the actions, they're sinful. They don't get charged for sin. We, we understand them humanly as sin, but God views them as either good, having inherent, natural inherent value, or worthless, having no inherent value. So we are actually doing good things or bad things in God's eyes, and the good, we know the judgment seat of Christ, according to 1 Corinthians 3, will go through fire and pass through and come out as precious stones and jewels. And the bad will be burnt up as wood, hay, and stubble. So we've got this concept as believers that we aren't focused on whether we did sin or whether we did righteous. We're focused on doing beneficial things for the kingdom of God and for ourselves because it's mutually exclusive. <clears throat> not, not under the motive of this is for me. But when we do something for the kingdom of God in the sense that we are obedient to him, it is beneficial for us as well. Sin, when we choose not to obey God, it doesn't benefit us and doesn't benefit the kingdom of God. Okay, our, our motive should not be solely for the benefit of us because that's called sin. Okay, our motive shouldn't be that, and if it is, then we're sinning. Our motive should be given to us by God in that capacity of love uh, that we understood last week about unconditional love that gives regardless of response. <clears throat> so when we do works... They're either good or they're bad, depending upon, first and foremost, our relationship with God. If we are in a proper relationship with God, all of the works that we do will be good. Because what it means is that we're trusting and obeying. The instant we choose not to obey God and go outside that fellowship, we now have made our choice to rule over ourselves, and we now are producing bad. So we've got to get back in fellowship. And that's that first John chapter one concept that we walk in the light and have sin in our lives. Or if we walk in the light, we do not sin, but if we have sent our lives and say we're in fellowship with God, we are liars because we are actually not in the light. We must then confess our sin and he will for continually forgive us and cleanse us from our unrighteousness. So that's a study for a different time, which is probably coming up in a few weeks. Pyrodzai de autos audena. Pyrodzai, again, is that present active indicative verb, which means to attempt to learn the character of an object through evaluation. It's that action of testing or tempting someone. 
Its subject is God in this grammatical instruction. So he's the one that is attempting to learn the character of an object or through evaluation. So he's our subject. Now it's doing the tempting. Now it's a present active indicative verb, and that present again is continuous action. The middle or the uh, active voice is used, which identifies God as the one who's performing the action of continuously attempting to learn the character of something through evaluation. And then you've got the indicative mood being used with parodzai, which means that this is reality. So God really performs a continuous action to attempt to learn the character of something through evaluation. Now you should be throwing question marks up in your head. And the reason for that is because we know in English, the New American Standard Translation at least, and, and whatever translation you guys are using, says that God doesn't do this. Well, that's what we're getting to. We've got those three words, de autos aldena, which are left that change that verb and negate it. Okay, So de is a conjunction of soft contrast, which links two constructs together. So we've got that command that was linked to the statement that God uh, cannot be tempted by evil, and then we have a new connection that because God cannot be tempted by evil, or connected to that with a slight difference, soft contrast versus harsh contrast, think white, not white but off-white, versus not white but black. You've got harsh contrast there, that's Allah. Day is the not white but off-white. It's a slightly different take, okay? Soft contrast. Um, so we're, we're kind of changing a little bit, but we're still related to everything else <clears throat> that we've been talking about so far. So day is a, construction, a conjunction of soft contrast, links two constructs together, the previous with the uh, antecedent. No. Postcedent, which is an word. Previous with the latter. Former with the latter, we'll call it that. You guys know what I'm talking about. Um, and they're slightly different in nature or meaning. Hey, we're 50 slides in, so we're good. In this passage, day is connecting the statement that God is untemptable by inherently worthless things to the statement of parodzai de autos haudena. Now, autos is a personal emphatic pronoun, which is used to express emphasis on the person performing an action. Who's the one performing the action? God. This is like saying, um, and this means himself, but it's like saying, I'm going to do this myself. Or me, myself, I'm going to pull, I'm going to do that. Um, so that's what autos does. And so it means himself in this passage because of the connection with the subject being God. <clears throat> now we've got that word audena, which literally means no one. So we start with me dice and audena, which actually come from that same heis concept, um, meaning one. And u means no, and may means not. So you've got not one to begin with and no one to end with. It's almost beautiful the way this has worked out. And I don't know, maybe I just have too much of an appreciation for it um, and I've been spending too much time and, and stuff. But it just it's almost beautiful that it starts with not one and ends with no one. Um, just kind of a way it's arranged. It's kind of nice. So in the accusative case, which Udena is in, uh, it identifies itself as a direct object. So no one which is nobody, <clears throat> not a single one or no one, is the recipient of the action of the verb, which is parodzai. So God is the one acting parodzai out, but he's acting it out to no one. So in essence, it's negated. He's not doing this. God doesn't tempt or test anyone. So God tests no one, is the statement that's being made. The accusative case also declares boundaries around the, an object, um, for the sake of creating specificity about what is actually receiving the action of the verb. Uh, it's kind of hard to be specific about no one. 
because that is all inclusive, right? It's not just believers. It's not non-believers. It's not. It's everyone. It's no one. God doesn't tempt anyone. Believer, non-believer. Um, yeah, it is kind of interesting because you would think that we would just have him not tempting believers because we kind of started that way. But theologically, that's incorrect according to this passage. And actually, it's against the nature and character of God if, if you want to go that route too. <clears throat> so it's kind of like putting a fence around no one who is everyone and saying God doesn't do that to, to anyone. He doesn't do that to nobody, which is terrible English. But whatever. It's, it's Greek anyway. Question? Well, just a, an idea, but I, if this isn't a good time to ask or say it. If it isn't, I don't know when it is, so okay. we well, might as well. And, and I, I don't, okay, this is a half-baked idea, so don't steal me. <laughs> Go for it, he already. Um, was that a pun? How? No, forget it. Oh, I, I, not intentionally, but I have to make it unintentionally. Um, so if, if if God doesn't tempt us, because if all good things down from come from God, He cannot be tempted. He can't tempt us. But by the existence of Satan, we do have sin, and we're enticed by our own lust. So it, it, we may be put in. He may not prevent us from ever being in a circumstance where we are tempted. So he, he stops us. He doesn't stop us from being in a circumstance where we have this sort of temptation. Just the, like Job. So it wasn't that God caused all this life, but he didn't he stop allowed them Satan, to happen. And he proved Job's character by not not stopping him. He wasn't the source of it all. And that, I don't know. Well, and... <clears throat> yeah, it did. But but way, why you may be having a hard time with it, and I don't know that this is true, but you can correct me if I'm wrong totally, is that the Reformed concept of God's will mm -hmm. is that if he allows it, he ordains it. That doesn't work with this. Right. God allowing something means that he allows it to happen because it doesn't affect his directive will. Right. Um, and that's why we still sin. So God's not the one forcing us to sin. Oh. And if he was, then he would be the one on the hook for judgment. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't work because he's righteous. He's not preventing us from being in circumstances where... Right. Those circumstances, and partly because Satan is the present ruler of this world system. He's the one that is in charge of Earth, of Cosmos Diablos. That's why we call it Cosmos Diablos. So I know you mentioned last week when you were walking out that you kind of have some... Not extreme, though. Yeah, and, and I I would consider that one an extreme. So I didn't know if that's where you're coming from or not. No, I'm not. But that concept of the, that Reformed kind of theology has... borrowing from both sides, <laughs> sort of. Yeah, like not a... Sounds biblical to me. So, the concept that God allowing something means that he ordains it or makes it happen um, or sets his stamp of approval on it. And okay. in some sense, by him allowing it, he's saying, I'm not going to stop it, so it's going to happen. But that doesn't mean he would want it to happen because he says that he purposes that no one goes to hell. Well, but it happens. Um, so if he doesn't want it to happen and he ordains all things, then we got a conflict there. So... I brought that up just because of what you mentioned like yeah, you were walking yeah. out last week. I didn't know yeah, no, that, that's, that's where you were coming from. I, that, I but... was just trying to rectify that we are, <clears throat> we are our character is proven through trials, kind of what we were talking about earlier. I was yeah. To... So again, we've got God's directive will that he says, I mean, in an ideal world, this is what God would direct out. Or in your life, he's, if you were completely obedient, he would direct you in this way. But <clears throat> there's also the permissive will that God says you have free will. Others have free will. Satan and company are out there doing their thing. And I am supreme over all these things, so much so that even 
Satan's choice to say, I'm going to make myself like the most high, has no real threat to my kingdom. Um, and then you've got his overruling will, which is what I give the example of a person trying to commit suicide. They put the gun in their head, pull the trigger, and the bullet goes around the skull instead of going through it. Um, that's where the volition isn't overridden. The ultimate goal of the volition of death, of suicide is, but the actual decision to pull the trigger was made. So you've got those three aspects of God's will, and that's a whole study on its own. Um, you can look at Balaam if you want a quick study on that. Read that tonight. You'll find out Balaam was killed, overruled the circumstances uh, at the end because of some of the choices he made. Okay, question? Oh, Okay, we got like three slides left here, so if, if you're hanging in, hang in there a little longer. Okay, so we've got boundaries around no one, okay? It's just fun to say. This is why English and Greek don't work together. There's boundaries around no one, okay? Everyone's in the boundaries of, of the accusative case here. So God doesn't test no one. All right, <clears throat> so with Udana coming at the tail end of our construct here, it drastically changes it. It negates what God is doing. Well, yeah, okay, I'm just going to leave it at that. So when coupled together with its intactical colleagues, I like that for license, the last contract of verse 13 reads, But he, which is God, really performs a continuous action to attempt to learn the character of something through evaluation himself to no one. So he doesn't do it. In other words, God himself really performs a continuous action to tempt no one, to learn their character through a test to anyone. Therefore, as believers, we are commanded not to believe or speak that the source of our trials or the source of tempting is God. If God's character says he can't be tempted and he doesn't tempt, and we say that he is being tempted or that he's tempting us, we are speaking against the character of God. Heresy? So they say that God is the source of sin. Then that is that would, yeah, exactly. I'm agreeing with you. I'm oh. I was still I was confused by the foot and the hat and or the head on the hand and the that was your signal right okay no sorry I really didn't that was no that's fine usually when people say heresy it's not in agreement to me not been my experience but that's okay we can learn something new sorry that's okay um so as believers we're commanded not to believe that the source of our trials is is God. Because it's against his character to say that God, who cannot be tempted by evil and does not tempt uh, into evil, is the source of it. It doesn't work. There are two other options which we will identify before this study on trials versus tribulation, trials versus temptation is completed, and both of which we will be discussing next session as we study verse 14. So there's your trailer. There's your teaser. Next time. You can think about it all week and get all excited about it. Um, we already know one of the areas. And you think I'm going to just go out and spoil this, but I'm not. But we're going to learn the other one next week. Look, that's our end slide. Okay, questions, comments? Robin.